Well, good morning once again. If you would uh, open your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, we're going to be working from uh, the first six verses of that chapter. And before we get there, I just kind of wanted to give you a um, a heads up kind of on the direction we're going. Uh, Usually in January of the year, we will have our State of the Church meeting, usually the end of January, sometimes on into February, depending upon how the calendar works. But it always seems like a good opportunity for us to take some time and talk about the church uh, in the Sundays leading up to that time, just so we can uh, kind of reorient ourselves on what the Bible would tell us about the church. And uh, so we get to talk about various aspects. And um, and so today is uh, no different in that regard. Last week, uh, we heard from Stephen that uh, Jesus said he will build his church. So I took great comfort in uh, in hearing that, being encouraged that he's the one building the church, that it's not dependent upon the uh, the great plans and the wisdom and the, the skill or the polish of four men or, or of any group of leadership or any one person. It is ultimately dependent upon Jesus himself, that he's the one who is building his church. And so I take great comfort in that. And today, uh, for our passage, we're going to be looking at uh, this one about the unified church. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4 is encouraging in a lot of ways, and really we could we could work through uh, the first 16 or so verses and find very great encouragement and instruction. Today we're just going to focus on the first six. But that's, uh, that's sort of the direction we're going, and then in subsequent weeks we'll talk about other aspects of the church and uh, and what God has done and is doing in the church, what we can expect um, from the, the New Testament conception, particularly of the church, and, uh, and and what that means. And so today we're going to be talking about the unified church. But before we get to our passage, I wanted to encourage you once again about the baptismal service upcoming. Again, that's on the 23rd, and then uh, our state of the church meeting will be on the 30th in the evening at 5 p.m. We will have a potluck. That's how we lure people in, right? So we have food. It works every time, too. And uh, so we'll have a potluck, and that starts at 5 o'clock. And, uh, and then after that, we will move into talking about what the Lord has done over the past years, or the past year particularly. And we'll talk about finances, and we'll talk about other uh, maybe programs or, or what has gone on and, and, uh, and then forecast into the future. So it really is an encouraging time, and I would encourage you, you to be there uh, for that. Uh, and then also, we are starting up uh, again tonight our evening services. And so we will have evening services uh, tonight and then the next two weeks. And then the third week, of course, is, or excuse me, the fourth week is that State of the Church meeting. So we won't have another service, obviously, at that time. And um, during this uh, month of evening services, uh, I wanted to take some opportunity and just talk about something that's really been on my mind um, personally uh, for a long time. We've We've preached... A couple of different times I've preached on uh, Romans 13 and, and uh, the relationship between the church and the government, etc. And, and we don't want to take more time during, a, during Sunday mornings to focus on that topic. But there's a lot more to say. There is the rest of the story. And so if you want to hear the rest of the story, if you want to hear uh, some things that have been um, uh, rattling around in my mind and, and uh, that I've spent quite a bit of time studying and looking into, then uh, evening services be the place to do that. So 6 o'clock over in the Fellowship Hall uh, tonight and then uh, next Sunday and the Sunday after that as well. I would encourage you for that. I know some of you have, have asked questions. Uh, you've had, you, you wanted more detail about uh, Romans 13 or the, the relationship between uh, the believer and the state and, and whatnot. If you are one of those who has questions or you're just curious, um, come on. Come on to the evening service and, and we're going to talk about it there. So 
enough of that. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're just going to be looking at the first six verses. So I want to read them for us. This is Paul, of course, and this is God's Word. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with your word open before us because we want to hear from you. We pray that you would take uh, this time to minister to us, that your spirit would take these words, your words, and bring them to us. Help us to see what is here. Pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would work in our minds, and that you would work in our church. Father, we trust you. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So you've got your uh, outline there in in your hand. Um, this uh, state of the church meeting is an important thing for us as a congregation to be able to do. To be able to come together and talk about what God has done uh, in this body. And there's an assumption there. There's, a, there's a, a presupposition there, and that is that we are a body that God is using, in which God is doing things, right? We are a body, and so we meet together to talk about that. Well, in our day and age, that is becoming less and less common, not state of the church meetings. Those are probably not all that common, but we see fragmentation in our society everywhere, and it seems to be increasing. I don't know that that's the case. I've not... I've not read statistics or something like that, but it sure seems like there's a greater degree of fragmentation than there is of people coming together. That in our day and age, there's a, there's a push in, uh, maybe just in the Western world, I don't know, but to cause division where there had been unity and separation and separation, and we break into ever smaller chunks and pieces. And that's not just in the world. That's not just out there. That's something that we see also if you look around within Christendom. Right? You see the same ha- happening in churches, in denominations, and uh, you see this, this ever-increasing fragmentation and division. And so we want to look at this passage today, which talks about a unified church. In a day where there's greater and greater fragmentation and disunity, this passage goes countercultural and talks about a unified church. And we want to look at what it looks like, and we want to look at what its foundation is. And so first of all, in these first three verses... What is the evidence of our unity? What is the evidence of our unity? Meaning, how is it made visible? How do we see it? What's the evidence of it? Well, Paul speaking here, of course, says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. And we need to stop right there and notice the therefore. We talked about this in our Sunday school class. And in your own Bible reading, you need to pay attention when you see key words like therefore. Therefore. He's drawing an inference 
from what he's said before. He's saying, basically, I have said these other things, and now I'm going to bring it down. I'm going to land it. I'm going to draw some conclusions based upon it, some inferences based upon what has been said before. And in our passage, we know that he's been talking uh, in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3, talking about what God has accomplished in salvation. What he has accomplished, that he has brought salvation to a sinful people. He has accomplished that working on their behalf and applying that to them. So that whereas you had sinners separated from God, now you have those who have been redeemed having union with Christ. And whereas you had various groups of people, sinners separated from God, now in Christ those groups have also been redeemed and united and brought together by union with Christ. And so he's been looking at those doctrinal points. The first three chapters of Ephesians is basically doctrine. He's been He's been really uh, developing that pretty thoroughly. We saw the same kind of transition from doctrine to application in Romans as well. The first 11 chapters of Romans was doctrine, thick doctrine. We spent, you know, a couple of years on it. So you got the point, right? That was doctrine. Well, then there was a transition at 12.1 where now, okay, what does this mean in your life? That's where you get a giant therefore and you get a whole bunch of commands being given. Instruction, exhortation, in light of what is true. But same thing here. We've had three chapters of doctrine, and uh, and it moves on to, therefore, what is the application in our lives. And I think there's a, there's a point we can make before we even delve any further into our passage here. All doctrine necessarily leads to application. All doctrine necessarily leads to application. Now, that's an instruction for those who love doctrine and and never seem to get around to the application. All doctrine necessarily leads to application, if it is true doctrine. Likewise, any true application necessarily flows from doctrine. So, some of us are more application-minded. Just tell me the point. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. What is the application? Well, the instruction, I think even just in the way Paul writes his letters, is that any true application necessarily flows from doctrine. And so, a person who loves doctrine can by no means ignore application because any true doctrine necessarily leads to application. Likewise, the person who loves application must get it from doctrine if it's to be true application. And all that from the word therefore. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, our salvation is a gracious gift given by God to undeserving, unworthy sinners. We know that about the gospel. If we don't know that about the gospel, we don't know the gospel. It is a gift by God to undeserving, unworthy sinners. And so, strictly speaking, we do not become worthy, absolutely worthy, of what God has done. We continue as sinners. We're familiar with the 
Reformation principle of, of being simultaneously sinners and justified. And you don't have to look all the way back to the Reformation. You can just look at your own week, this week, that you were justified in Christ and a sinner. And justified in Christ and a sinner. Simultaneously. That's the nature of the Christian life. We are that. And so, in a sense, we will never become worthy in this life if we're speaking strictly. And even Paul himself, maybe the greatest Christian ever to live, would say towards the end of his life, I'm the chief of sinners. Right? So it's not something we grow out of. And if you're, if you're still upset at yourself that, that you're a sinner and you've been a Christian low these 10 years, and you're, and you're still uh, bummed that you're a sinner, well, welcome to the Christian life. You are a sinner. Right? Just ask, just ask your spouse, right? They'd probably tell you. Most of us know without even having to go that far, and it's maybe more painful uh, to go that far, I don't know. But that's not what he means here. What he's talking about here, walking in a manner worthy, is that there ought to be correspondence between the internal realities that have happened in our lives, that he's talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. There ought to be correspondence between those internal realities and external evidence. It ought to be seen. We ought to walk in a manner worthy, meaning the stuff that's true inside of us, that we've been made new, that we've been given life, that we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. The stuff that has happened ultimately in God's presence, that we have been declared just because of Jesus. We have access to the Father. We have union with the Son. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. Shows itself outwardly. Not perfectly. And not always super clearly, but it will show itself. And he's saying here that is to be our walk, that there ought to be outward evidence, a consistency. It, sh- it should be seen. This redemption that's happened within is to be seen without. And so the point of application here is pretty simple. All the saving work of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, and if you've not read that in some time or you can't pull that up immediately, you have an afternoon. And I would encourage you to go read Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and 4, 5, 6. It won't take you that long. All the saving work in chapters 1, 2, and 3, which has been accomplished on our behalf, ought to be showing itself in our lives. Ought to be becoming evident. And again, not perfectly. And maybe not even always consistently. Of course, we would desire that. But it ought to be seen. What has gone on inside, you will know. Uh, that it has gone on inside, and you'll see evidences of it on the outside. So, he says, walk worthy, verse 1. Verse 2, he talks about our treatment of one another. So, what specifically are you talking about here, Paul, when you're saying walk in a manner worthy? Like, what exactly do you mean? Do you mean generally speaking? Are you talking about filling out your taxes? And well, he, Yeah, there's implications for all of that, but here, he's talking about how we treat one another. He says, with all humility and gentleness... With patience, bearing with one another in love. The way we treat one another shows itself, right? Shows, reveals the redemption that has gone on inside. And again, if we, if we think back to what he's talked about in 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, he's talking about taking sinners, undeserving, unworthy sinners, who, by the way, don't get along with each other, very often, redeeming them by his gracious work and then placing them together in the body. 
That's the doctrine he's been talking about. And he says, okay, how does this apply in your life? Well, it's a pretty short trip, right? It's a pretty easy deduction for us to see that, well, we ought to treat each other with all humility and with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. If we all have this salvation by the gracious working of God, if we all get to have peace with God because of what Jesus has done, what the Spirit has applied to us, we have that relationship with the Father, we ought to treat each other that way. Right? We ought to treat each other that way. Now, at this point, I've got a decision to make. I could, I could take some time and I could talk about all the ins and outs of what humility means and what gentleness means and, and what patience means and bearing with one another in love and all those things. And there would be benefit in, in pursuing those things. But I think, well, today I'm not going to focus on those. And here's why. Not just because I'm lazy. I, I have laziness. But, but it's because you already know what they mean. The problem isn't that they're tricky. The problem isn't that you can't figure out the algorithm. That's not the problem. The problem is deeper in here. The problem is, I don't want to. I already know what to do. I don't want to. I'm, I'm so busy thinking about myself. I'm so busy valuing myself. I, can't, I couldn't be bothered to value you. Right? And you see that play out in, in large ways sometimes. Very visible ways. And in small ways, a lot of the time. I'm so busy thinking of myself that I, I, I couldn't be bothered to be humble before you. I couldn't be bothered to, to be patient with you, but you should definitely be patient with me. Right? You see how that's, that's, that's my heart. Okay? And if I'm the only one in the room who has that heart, that's a bummer. <laughs> I'm probably not. That's a safe guess that I'm not the only one who's like that. So the issue isn't for us to spell out all the details of what humility means and, and all that kind of stuff. The issue is to see our own heart. Our own heart. Why, why don't I treat you with, with patience? I, I'd, I'd rather be impatient with you because I'm, I'm really patient with myself. Because I'm really concerned about myself. So that's a much larger issue is that we just forget to do those things because we're busy being uh, thinking about ourselves or whatnot. And thus Paul writes this section. Having explained all of that doctrine having explained uh, how it is that we have union with God, how, how we've been made uh, forgiven saints by the gracious working of God. Now this, this comes right after the doctrinal section, as I've already said. Doctrine done right keeps us thinking about the truths that make sense of and motivate our lives, lives of obedience. Doctrine done right keeps those truths in front of us. If I would just rather, you know, move on past the depravity issues and sinfulness of man issues, because I'd rather just talk about these other things. What have I done? Well, I've forgotten the very doctrine that would cause me to be humble before you. I'd just rather move on and think about something else. But, but doctrine causes us to say, this is my condition. And if, if it were not for the saving work of God on my behalf, I would still be there. But God savingly worked on my behalf. 
And so now I'm in Christ. At one with you. We've been bound together. And so I want to treat you with humility. I entered into this Christian life the same way you did. By the same grace that you did. The history may have looked different. The, the family growing up may have looked different. The, the sins that I wallowed in may have looked different. And, and, and all of that kind of stuff. But in the end, you are a Christian by the same exact means that I am a Christian. And so, we are to have humility before one another. We are to be patient with one another. It just makes sense. I just forget it. So there's a point of application here for us before we move on. I'm going to have to pick up the pace. Jesus said we are to love one another even as he loved us. That's not news. You already knew that. Your, your Awana kids know that. That's not new. He who humbled himself, Philippians chapter 2, would have us be humble before one another. Christ, who was gentle and lowly in heart, tells us also to be gentle with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We just need to remember to do it. We just need to remember who it is we really are. And we will be humble before one another. The one who is patient with us, 2 Peter 3.9, says we ought also to be patient with each other. Jesus, who bore with insults and rejection, commands us to bear with our fellow Christians like he did, with the faithless and twisted generation they put into death. This is our Lord. This is the one who saved us. And by the way, he saved us by these very means. How, how, can, we, how can we but do otherwise? But treat one another with humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another and loving. All this we do in love, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility that was between us. He's established peace. He has made it happen. And so, verse 3, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have an eagerness to maintain this unity. I want to look at this uh, this verse. It's a short verse, but I want to look at it in reverse. Okay, First of all, uh, Christians have a bond of peace with one another. The very end. Christians have a bond of peace with one another. Before we came to Christ, we were ruled by our own desires, our own passions, and very often those competed with, with your desires and your passions, and thus we were at enmity with, with each other. And particularly in the context of Ephesians, there was this enmity between, between Jew and Gentile. Right? There, was a, there was a great enmity and division, and we see, uh, we see enmity and division even now, right? Now in Christ, we have peace. That has been put away. That has been dealt with. Whereas we used to be primarily identified as Jew or Gentile or some other designation. Now we are primarily identified as Christian. I am in Christ. Oh, and by the way, I'm Jewish. Or, oh, and by the way, I'm Gentile. I am a Christian. We are unified in him. We have a bond of peace. We are attached to one another in a relationship of peace where there had been hostility. Secondly, this unity is of the Spirit, meaning it is a work of the Spirit that He accomplished when He baptized us into Christ. Of the Spirit here is 
talking about given, be, having been given to us, created by and given to us by the Spirit. The bond of peace we have with one another in Jesus is ours because of the Spirit's work. He has done it. And thus, this unity we have is of the Spirit. And then thirdly, working backwards through this, since unity in the bond of peace is ours by the gift of the Spirit, we are to maintain it. We don't build it. We don't accomplish it. We don't create it. We are newly created into it. You see the difference? One is something we accomplish, we achieve, we work towards. It's the end goal. It's not the case now, but someday it will be. He says, no, you have unity because you are in Christ. So what are you to do? Achieve it? No, you've already got it. Are you to build it? No, God already built it. Are you to create it? No, God's already created it. What are you to do? Well, maintain it. Maintain it. We, we continue, we act as though it is true, because it is true. And so we treat one another with humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. We don't get to determine the things around which we will have unity. God has already done so. He decides and he tells us what the nature of our unity is. And this is what he moves on to do in verses 4 and 5 and 6. What is the foundation of our unity? Now, I love this. This, this gives us a peek into Paul for a second. I, I've said many times how Paul starts off with the doctrine and then moves on to uh, the duty or to the, the obedience. The exhortation comes later, right? Well, here, I love it that Paul went through three chapters that are dense. Three chapters of doctrine. And he transitions to what is going to be the exhortation. And he makes it three whole verses before he goes right back to doctrine. That's a man after my own heart right there. I just love how he does that. And I think there's a connection. I'm, I'm joking on, on one hand, of course. But I think there's a close connection that we, could, that we could draw here. You cannot separate the two. Doctrine and duty. You can't separate them. How will you know what to do if you don't know what is true? And if you, if, you, if you know what is true in such a way that it doesn't affect your life, you don't really know what's true. They're always connected. They're always connected. They're, they're distinct. We can identify the difference between doctrine and behavior. We can identify that, that difference. There is a distinction. But they're not separate. They're not disconnected. They're tied together. And having spent three chapters on doctrine, he makes it through three verses before he's right back to doctrine for three chapters. What is the foundation of our unity? First of all, I want to notice we went through uh, this, this uh, passage today in Sunday school and we were trying to observe the order, how things are organized in verses 4, 5, and 6 when he moves to talk about this doctrine. And um, I, I want us to notice that he has organized this unity he's describing around the persons of the Trinity. Normally, when we think of the Trinity, we think Father, Son, Spirit. Here he talks about the Spirit and then the Son, or the Lord as he calls him, and then finally the Father. So he goes the other direction, but it's the same topic. He's talking about the unity that we have because of what the Trinity has done. The triune God has saved us 
and thus our unity with one another is grounded in what he has done. So let's walk through this briefly and see. There's one body and one spirit. Verse 4, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. First of all, there's one spirit. Verse 4. After centuries of separation and hostility and suspicion and division between Jew and Gentile, all that has been broken down. That, that dividing wall, that barrier between them has been broken down. Now, I don't, think, I don't think we can quite imagine that distinction and that barrier and that hostility. It, was, it, it went on for over a millennium. We've got problems in the U.S., they haven't lasted a millennium, not in the U.S. I've, I was trying to think of examples about, about people who would have such division and hostility between one another like this. And so I thought about race issues, and I thought about you know, slavery, and I thought about you know, other, other kind of nationality kind of issues and things like that. Those are all significant. They've not lasted a thousand years festering right in our midst like this. So, so on one hand, we can't quite grasp, perhaps, the depth of the division between the two. It's like those, you see video of people walking on top of a glacier, and oh, there's this little crack. A little crack might go down 3,000 feet, and it might get bigger as it goes, it might get smaller as it goes. You may fall down there and never be hurt from again. It goes all the way down, and this goes all the way down. There has been those disparate groups, those, those people who were so separated from one another, had such hostility, were formed together into one body. Dividing wall having been removed, brought together into one body. For he himself is our peace, who has made us Jews and Gentiles. This is Paul speaking in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He has made us Jews and Gentiles both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We of different backgrounds are united in one body, the body of Christ. We have peace with God because Jesus himself gave his own body on that tree for us. There is one body of Christ and all Christians are in it. Secondly, there is one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There's only one Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit baptizes all believers by the same process into the same body. This is the work of the Spirit. Right? He's, he's not like that kid who gets the bag of M&Ms and separates all the colors before he eats them. Right? Those kids are going to be accountants. I don't know what they're going to be. But they separate him. That's not the Holy Spirit. He's not separating and looking at him in those ways. He has takes them all together, makes them, forms them into one body. When the Holy Spirit is placing people into the body of Christ, he's not sorting them by color, by background, by class, by wealth, or by anything. Gender. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
This is the, the work of the triune God bringing us in. He says here, in verse 4, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. I just want to say something briefly in passing about calling here. You, you might ask, you might ask a, a, you know, a Christian woman, what is your calling? And she might say, well, it's to, you know, it's to minister to my kids or maybe, maybe I, you know, to take care of people or to bless others. Or she might have an idea of, of what she thinks God wants her to do with her life. That's not the calling that's being discussed here. The calling that's being discussed here is about being placed into the body of Christ, being called, being brought in. There's, there's movement attached to it. This is not the kind of calling like it's my calling to uh, do some of these other things. This is the calling of God that results in salvation. It's the means by which we were brought into the body of Christ. This is the Holy Spirit who issues that call. He's the one who brings us in. We're talking about being called into salvation, into the Christian life to begin with. So there is one spirit and there is one hope. There is one hope. Now, if you were to take the message of hope to your hostile neighbors who uh, don't believe in Christ, and you were to talk about hope, they, they want hope. Everybody wants hope, and particularly hope for a few, uh, the, the future, or maybe even uh, specifically hope about where we're going to go when we die. Everyone wants hope, and that hope is found only in Christ. And can you imagine the, the, what the, the unbeliever is, is, is dealing with when that comes? Because the hope sounds great. It sounds great, and I want that hope. Oh, it, it means it's all wrapped up in the work of God on my behalf. It's all wrapped up in Jesus himself and what he says. And am I going to take, you know, how am I going to take that deal? It's a, it's a, uh, for the mind of the unbeliever who doesn't understand uh, really the value of Christ, that's got to be a difficult pill to swallow because life is lived as uh, apart from Christ. We get to be our own king. And part of what's happening when you become a Christian is you realize, oh, I, I'm not the king. Jesus is the king. And you've got to give up your throne. It takes the work of God to make that change. There is only one hope, and it's one hope that is common to all Christians. No matter who you are or were, the hope given you by the Spirit of God is the same. Glorious union with God and resurrected life in heaven for all eternity. That's our hope. And it's not different because you were born in a different place. It's not different because you have a different last name. It's not different because you come from a different uh, background than I do. Because there's something distinct about you. It's one hope to which all Christians are called. The one and only Spirit of God has called each of us Christians into one body of Christ and given us one hope of heaven. Unity. We have been given one. Secondly, there is one Son. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one Jesus. He can't be divided. There, there's not a Jesus for rich people and a Jesus for the, for the oppressed. There's not a Jesus for, for uh, Americans and a Jesus for non-Americans. There's not a Jesus for men and a Jesus for women. There is one Jesus. That ought to be simple. But sometimes you will hear people say, well, my Jesus 
wouldn't do that. That always concerns me because there is only one. And Scripture tells us about Him. And salvation is by Him and by Him alone. There is one Lord. There is one Jesus. And His sacrifice, His life of obedience and His death on the cross is one. And by the way, we all needed that. It's not as if some of us needed Jesus to have been obedient to the Father and some didn't. No, we were all alike stuck. Guilty before God. Not having righteousness before Him, but instead having guilt before Him. There is one Lord who paid that penalty. There is one Lord who was obedient in that way to the Father and accumulated righteousness so that we could have it. There's only one Lord. And there's one faith. Moving along, it's a, an objective faith. It's the content of what we believe. The faith here is not me believing. That is also called faith. But here it's the content of Christian doctrine, specifically gospel doctrine. That's what he's talking about. There is one faith. It's the content of what is believed. There is a, a unity in what is believed by everyone that is saved. The holy triune God is our creator who made us and has every right to demand and expect our obedience. But of course, mankind disobeyed in Adam and we were all plunged into sin and condemnation. Desiring to redeem fallen humanity, the, son, the Father sent the Son, born of a virgin, born as fully human and yet remaining fully God. He lived a sinless life. He died at the hands of unjust men in order to redeem sinful humans. These are core issues. He was buried and then bodily raised from the dead on the third day. And then he ascended back to the Father's side and he will return again someday to judge the living and the dead. This is the faith. There is only one faith. There is only one faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're probably talking here about union with Christ. It's not talking about dunking that happens that we're going to do in a couple of weeks. It's not talking about sprinkling that some churches do. Not the act of contacting water with a new believer, but the fact of the new believer being united with Christ, brought into union with Him and having been baptized into Christ. One God and Father. All of this has been accomplished. This is how he finishes out this section. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The idea here is that God is the one who has been sovereignly at work orchestrating this whole thing. This has been his plan. This is what he is accomplishing. And there's only one God. That's one of the clearest truths of the Scripture. Start from the very beginning. In the beginning, God. Go to the Shema. The, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6. There is only one God. That's, that's one of the main themes of Scripture. And this one God has one way of salvation. And everyone who is saved is saved in the same way. And there is unity amongst those people. I could say more, but for the sake of time, I'll move on. 
here's the here's my final uh, point of application, I think, for us. Since our unity is rooted in doctrine, we ought to take seriously the doctrine of the Bible. Bypassing doctrine in favor of building unity is like trying to build a house and bypassing the foundation. At first, that house might look okay from the outside, but closer inspection will show dangerous cracks. And then when a storm blows in, that house is going to collapse. Christianity is a doctrinal faith far from being endangered by doctrine. Paul is saying here that our unity is founded upon biblical doctrine. So let's take that seriously. And think about what he has talked about here. The unity that we have. The basic unity that we are to maintain. Since, since I needed grace to be brought into the Christian life. And you needed the same grace to be brought into the Christian life. To be redeemed before God. You and I needed that same grace of God. How can I lord it over you? And be prideful towards you. Have I just denied what I've just said? I need to go back and remember. I get to be in this Christian life the same way you do. By the grace of God. Because he saved me by his grace. Not by my merit. And by the way, you, if you're saved, were saved by his grace, not by your merit. There is a parity. There is a, there is a unity in that. So we can be humble with each other. And we can be patient. When your, 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 your sin shows itself, or my sin shows itself, we can be patient with each other. Because if yours is showing today, you can bet mine's going to show tomorrow. You, you might have to wait 24 hours to see mine explode. So we can be patient with each other. I, I, don't, I don't have, I don't have a, a, a monopoly on, on uh, that stuff, and you don't either. So we can be patient with each other. We were placed into this Christian life by grace, through faith, in Christ. And there's only one of Him. And so we can treat each other with patience. We can bear with one another. Love one another. Because of what is true. Because of these doctrinal truths. Because of the unity of the gospel. Unity is in short supply in our day. People seem willing to divide over just about anything. Just about anything. For genuine Christians, though, God has presented us with a unity that is built upon his own unity. The Holy Spirit has called every last Christian into the body of Christ and given every last one of us the same sure and certain hope of eternal peace with God in glory. That's what he, the Holy Spirit, has done. The Son has accomplished his work of obeying God's law perfectly, Dying in our place as the perfect substitute to pay for our breaking God's law. And only through what the Son has accomplished and our being identified with Him by faith do we have peace with God. The Son has done it. And there's only one of Him. The Father has ordained that we would be saved in Christ and united in Him into one people for God's own possession. We have been given Unity around the gospel by God's saving work. Ours is not to cobble together some form of unity, but rather to strive to maintain the unity that he has given us. So that means we cling to the truths of the gospel and we seek to understand and defend them. And then understanding gospel truth and the fact that we have peace with God based entirely on the gracious saving work of the triune God, then we treat one another with humility, gentleness, gentleness, patiently bearing with one another 
in love. And it shows itself outwardly. Our inward unity that we have by the work of God shows itself in the way I treat you. And so let's be patient with each other. Let's be long-suffering. Let's, let's be humble and gentle with one another. Let's love one another. Here's why. Here's why. And he's placed us together with his Holy Spirit within us, so that's also how. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed when we think about what you've done for us in Christ, that, that you, uh, through whom are all things, you are over all and through all and in all, that you sent your Son for rebels like us, redeemed us in Christ by his obedience, by his death on the cross. When we are united with him, we have his blessings, we have his spoils. And your spirit applies that to us, baptizing us into one body and giving us one hope. Father, thank you for this saving work of the triune God on our behalf. I pray, Father, that you would work in our midst, that we would, that we would ponder these truths, that we would rejoice in what you've done for us, that these internal things, these things that have been done spiritually for us would begin to show themselves practically in our actions, our behaviors, and our attitudes, and our words towards one another. That we would be eager to maintain that unity that we have in the gospel. We ask for your help in this. We ask that you would be at work in us, drawing our minds and our eyes repeatedly to what has been done and empowering what you would have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here to pray for you in a moment, if you would like. And uh, uh, you who have been working on the blast zone, Miss Brianna is going to be up here to um, talk to you about that. I want to close with these words from Colossians chapter 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Praise God. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.